Well, it is good to be with you all today. And at this time, uh, children are welcome to uh, go off to Children's Church. And just one uh, brief note about that. Our children's classroom has moved. We are now in room 102. So be looking for room 102. Would you please join me now as we uh, go to our God in prayer? Father in heaven, uh, we... We are grateful this morning for an opportunity to get to hear your voice. We thank you for the reality that you are a God who cares about us, a God who reaches out in relationship and in love. So we pray that by your spirit, we would be able to hear from you this morning. We pray that we would behold Jesus, and we pray that we would value your words more than our own. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but it is your word that stands forever. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we are going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at verses 1. No, we're not. We did that last week. Uh, we're going to look at verses 8 through 17. Now, there is an episode in the office. I know you're thinking, okay, we're off to a great start. There's an episode in The Office in which uh, Michael Scott has left Dunder Mifflin and he has gone rogue. He has started his own paper company, aptly named the Michael Scott Paper Company. He's in uh, the startup phase in this particular episode and, and he is looking for investors. And so he goes to the most logical place he could go to, his grandmother. And he sets up a meeting at his grandmother's retirement home, and he's surrounded by his, you know, his potential investors, Nana, front and center, and then her, her, her friends. Um, and he begins to make his pitch. He's got his dream team assembled, and he begins to, to, to speak in, in grand terms. And pretty early on in his presentation, his Nana stops him and starts asking him some very practical good business questions like, what is your mission statement? To which Michael responds, my mission is stated as follows. I will not be beat. I will never give up. I am on a mission. That is the Michael Scott guarantee. All right. Now, that is a mission statement. It's not a particularly good one, but from it, we can deduce what he is trying to do, and, and from it, we can observe some core values Hard work, tenacity, perseverance. But again, unfortunately for Michael, this is not a particularly good statement, and Michael didn't really possess those values, at least not consistently. But just about every company on this planet, just about every group that aims to do something has a mission statement, has a goal in mind, and they spend thousands upon thousands upon thousands of dollars on consultants to come in and help them craft the perfect mission statement is along with the, the, the core values that are going to define how they achieve that mission. And this is a worthwhile endeavor. Why? Because mission statements matter. Right? We need to have a view of what it is we're aiming at if we're going to achieve anything. And almost as importantly as our mission statement, or actually just as importantly as our mission statement, is our core values, the ways in which we are going to behave as we try to accomplish that mission. Well, Peter in this letter gives Christians a mission statement. We read that in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. 
Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is a compliment to Jesus' great commission to go and make disciples of all nations. And Peter is helping us to see that it's not simply the words that we go out and preach, but it's also the way in which we live. Those two things need to go hand in hand as we seek to make disciples of all nations. So this is our mission, to go and make disciples and to do so with not just our words, but our lives. And in order to achieve that mission, There are certain characteristics that will need to define Christian community. And we see those characteristics in verses 8 through 9. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing." So our focus this morning will be on the characteristics of Christian community, and then we're going to look at the effects that those characteristics can have in the world in which we are trying to share the gospel. So we're going to start by focusing pretty heavily on verses 8 and 9 and the characteristics of Christian community. So I want to read those verses for us one more time here, starting in verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. All right, well, verse 8 begins with an address. Who is Peter writing to? All of you. Every single one of you. In the preceding verses, Peter has addressed specific groups of people. And perhaps you've been thinking, well, I haven't been addressed directly. Maybe I'm off the hook. Maybe I can can just kind of zone out for what follows. But Peter shakes us out of our complacency in the beginning of verse 8 by saying, all of you, regardless of power, regardless of status, regardless of gender, everyone who belongs to Jesus is being addressed by verse 8. And, the, and he's telling us here that, that regardless of who we are, regardless of what we are bringing into the Christian community, the most powerful and the least powerful need to be defined by the following attributes. And here we see a list of those attributes. And what is at the top of this list? First is unity of mind. Unity of mind. This is a call for us to be like-minded. Another way that this can be translated is be harmonious or be agreeable. Now, this is not a particularly popular command in our Western individualistic culture, is it? We tend to like to define ourselves by the ways in which we are different. But I think it's worth pointing out that often the quest to define ourselves by what makes us unique, by what sets us apart, that quest often proves futile. So often the quest to be countercultural or non-conforming, it just ends up being another form of conformity. There was an article in the Washington Post a while back with the title, Hipsters All Look the Same, Man Inadvertently Confirms. 
So there were uh, two parts to this story. Uh, The first was a study that came out of MIT where one professor tried to mathematically model why and when a counterculture style eventually becomes mainstream. To build his algorithm, he used typical, quote, hipster fashion uh, as a starting point. So beards, beanies, flannels. And he eventually found that, quote, hipsters ironically end up synchronizing. sensing the transition away from a conformist trend at roughly the same time, then abandoning it altogether before starting a new trend that the mainstream will inevitably encroach upon again, and so on and so forth. The result is that they conform in their nonconformity. There was once a time where people accused me of being a hipster. I'm now a dad, so I I eat dinner at five. I wear sensible footwear. Uh, my uh, Spotify uh, wrapped last year was Steve Green and Daniel Tiger songs. <laughs> so I cannot claim to be countercultural in any way at this point. All right, so that is the first part of the story. Well, it turns out that, that one hipster, after reading the article, saw himself in the article. Literally. He saw himself in the feature image of the article. And he ended up writing an email to the MIT Journal, and he said, you used a heavily edited Getty image of me for your recent bit of clickbait about why all hipsters look the same. It's a poorly written and insulting article, and somewhat ironically, about five years too late to be as desperately relevant as it's attempting to be. He was not pleased. And the email concluded with a threat of legal action because he believed that the article used his photo without proper compensation. It turns out, however, that the image was not a photo of the angry emailer, but a Getty uh, Getty stock photo model. He was proving the point that the study was making so powerfully that he couldn't even distinguish himself from another person. Friends, this is so often what our attempts to distinguish ourselves lead to. So often our attempts at being nonconformist just make us conformist to a different standard. The quest to be an individual, to pave your own path, so often, again, is futile. But more importantly than that, it doesn't satisfy. Friends, we were made to belong. We were made to belong to Jesus, and we were made to belong to one another. Christ not only calls us to himself, but he also brings us into his body where we are made members one of another. This is what Paul tells us in Romans 12, 5. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. We are members one of another. We belong to each other. So it means that we ought to pursue unity of mind. We ought to be harmonious, to be agreeable. Now, does unity of mind mean uniformity? No, not at all. One of the beautiful things about the church is its diversity. In fact, Rebecca McLaughlin in her book, Confronting Christianity, points out that Christianity is the most diverse movement in history. And it's been multicultural, multiracial, and multiethnic from its very inception. The church that we look forward to at the end of history will consist of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That is part of the beauty 
of the church, the fact that we are not the same. Uniformity is not the goal, but by the Spirit of God, unity is still possible. And this is what we ought to be striving toward. And how do we do this? Friends, by focusing on Jesus, by making Him central, by fixing our eyes on the gospel. He is what makes us who we are. He is what unites us. And the gospel actually enables us to appreciate one another's differences in ways that that nothing else really can. And what I mean by that is, is this. See, the message of the gospel starts with wonderful news, right? That God has made a world that is good and that he's placed humans in it made to reflect him, made to, made to be brought into perfect, harmonious relationship with him as he exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not only that, we are meant to reflect his goodness in the world that he made. But we pretty quickly made a mess of that. We decided that instead of, 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 of conforming to him, we wanted to be nonconformist. We wanted to pave our own path. And that brought sin and misery, devastation into his good world. And we have been suffering the ramifications of that ever since, all the while longing for that communion to be restored. But we find that no matter how hard we try to do it on our own, we can not. We just can't. It's like little dirt is always mixed up in the brownie batter. It doesn't matter how good right, the brownies smell. If you know that there's dirt in the brownies, you're not going to want to eat them. That's what our righteousness amounts to. But God in his goodness didn't leave us in that position. Instead, he came and lived the perfect life that we all so deeply want to live and be defined by. We have a innate desire for righteousness. This is actually something, too, that's being confirmed even by evolutionary biologists and moral psychologists. People who don't affirm the message of the gospel will still point out that we want to be righteous. We long for that, but we can't do it. But again, God in his mercy lived that out in a way that we want to, but just fail to over and over and over again. Jesus embodied the righteousness that we want to see and the righteousness that we want to be. But instead of receiving the benefits of that righteousness, he took on the penalty of a lawbreaker. He took on the penalty that our sin deserves. But the goodness doesn't just end there, like, oh, now we escape judgment. No, no, no. He actually gives us the righteousness that we long for part of the great exchange. He takes on our sin and he gives us his perfection. That's at the very heart of the gospel. And we receive that not by anything that we've done, not by any qualification that we have. We receive it merely as a gift. It's been given. We didn't do a thing to earn it. What does that have to do with unity of mind and unity in diversity? Well, friends, if salvation was something that we contributed to, if salvation was something that we earned, if it was bestowed on us because of some qualification that we have, we would not appreciate other people's differences. Why? Because they would automatically be deemed a threat. Think about it this way. Just about every person who has ever broken some sort of record or has been influential in their field, as soon as someone comes alongside of them, 
what do we do? We pit them against each other. We say, uh-oh. And we interview the person who had the record and we say, how do you feel about the person coming up behind you? That's our natural tendency. It's to be at competition with one another. The only way that we escape that is if salvation comes to us outside of ourselves, outside of our qualifications, outside of anything that we've done. And that's exactly what happens in the gospel. We get to be saved apart from any sense of self-justification. And so that means that people from around the world who do things differently from us but belong to Jesus aren't seen as threats. Because we, too, are just recipients of the same grace. Instead of seeing them as, as potentially competing with us, now we get to see them as what they truly are. Our brothers and sisters, people that we get to learn from. So we're not looking for uniformity. No, we're, we're looking for unity. And again, that is made possible by the gospel. We can come together in unity. And as I mentioned before, right, again, it, it's not uniformity that we're looking to, and we even see that in this word itself. The call is to live harmoniously with one another. This is instructive. If we're trying to sing together, we are necessary, we should, we should try at least to sing the same song, right? It's, it's chaos if we don't do that. But does every song, does every sung song, is it always done in, in unison melody? No. There are times for that. There are times where unison melody can be powerful. But you know what's even more powerful and more beautiful? When we all break out into different parts and we sing the same song, but in harmony. Two-person harmony is great. Three-person harmony is even better. Four-person harmony, get out of here. Right? It's beautiful. And that is a picture of what we as the church get to do together. We each bring our own different peace as we seek the same goal. So consider for a moment, are you seeking unity of mind? Are you seeking to live harmoniously with other Christians? Or are you way too quick to divide? Look, there are reasons to break fellowship, right? unrepentant sin, teachings that deny the essentials of the faith, you know, the person and work of Jesus, the resurrection of the dead, the reality of the Trinity, the authority of scriptures, essentially everything that we have contained in the apostles or the Nicene creeds. Right? Those are, if, if someone is teaching something contrary to that, then, then yeah, we, we break fellowship. But there are lots of reasons that we break fellowship that have nothing to do with those things. We are really good at drawing dividing lines, but our biblical call here is to seek unity, to come together, to live harmoniously. And when we do, friends, it is beautiful. Something beautiful takes place. So again, consider how can you grow in seeking unity with your brothers and sisters in Christ, seeking peace all right, so that is the first attribute. The next attribute on the list is sympathy. We seek unity of mind and sympathy. And just a quick note, if you're getting nervous, you spent a really long time on the first attribute. I spent a really long time on the first attribute because, again, I think it's, it's one of the, the harder ones for us to apply in our very individualistic culture. 
So we're going we're to pick up the pace a little bit as we move forward. So, so don't, don't worry. We will get pizza. All right. So unity of mind and sympathy. And I think sympathy naturally flows from unity of mind. If we are seeking to understand one another, to live harmoniously with each other, then mutual care will follow. And what does sympathy look like in action? It means that we bear one another's burdens. It means that we rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep. It means that if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And again, just, I don't think this happens apart from the gospel. If we're not united in the fact that we didn't earn anything, again, we're going to be competing with each other. But the beauty of the message of Jesus is that this can be a lived reality. We can show each other true sympathy. And sympathy is our unity of mind in action. It gives hands and feet tangible expression to living harmoniously. All right, next on the list is brotherly love. The Greek word being translated here is Philadelphos. It's the word from which we get the name of our great city, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Now, I think our tendency is to look at this command to brotherly love and to just kind of whittle it down to love. Right? We're being called to love, but I think that taking the brotherly out of brotherly love is problematic for a number of reasons. First one being that the text says brotherly love. It's the authority. We are not, so we should not. Again, don't, don't take the brotherly out of brotherly love. But brotherly love, in addition to that, it gets at something that the way that we use the word love in our culture doesn't quite capture. And think about the way in which we use the word love. And for one thing, we, we have a tendency to use the word love somewhat flippantly. We'll say things like, I love my wife, I love my children, I love my church, I love pizza. We are saying, we are saying using the same word with the same degree of passion to describe what ought to be two very different things. We can be somewhat flippant in the way that we use this word, love. Another thing that can be problematic with the way that we use the word love by itself is that we often use it primarily to describe our feelings about a given person or thing. Our, our songs about love, our movies about love, just about every love story that our culture has produced, it's about our feelings. Now, feelings are, are good. You know, we're, we're called to, to love God with all of our heart, which implies our feelings. God has deep feelings towards us. So we don't pretend as though feelings don't exist, but feelings are not the totality of what it means to love. And I think that this idea of brotherly love helps us to see that. See, I, I've got an older brother, and I, I love him a lot. He's a, he's a good man. He's also a pastor. Um, and I've got a lot of respect for him. He's actually hugely influential in me coming to faith when I was about 18. So I will be eternally grateful uh, to my brother for that. I love my brother. In our life together, there have been seasons I haven't particularly liked my brother. 
and I, I know the third verse is, is true as well. So we're, we're about seven years apart. So uh, growing up, you know, there's, I, I, I endured some torment. Uh, he, I, was, I was annoying to him, I'm sure. So if I were to judge my love for my brother primarily based on my feelings, well, we'd have some massive issues. But regardless of my feelings, I will always be there for my brother. And again, I know that the reverse is true as well. Why? Because we're brothers, and we owe that to one another. Well, friends, look around this room. Do you know who you're seeing? You are seeing your brothers and sisters in Christ. And what is God's call? To love them like you would love your natural brother or your natural sister. To be there for them, to care for them, to seek their good regardless of your feelings. And this isn't based on a choice or preference. Right? You didn't choose your natural siblings. You didn't choose your church siblings either. God did in both instances. The call isn't to like our church siblings, to share the same interests, to, to have similar hobbies. No, the call is to love. But one of the amazing things about love is that as we act in love towards our brothers and sisters, we often find that the feelings of love follow. C.S. Lewis got at this point in his excellent book, Mere Christianity, when he writes, Do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love him. So we owe one another brotherly love. Next on the list is a tender heart. This can also be translated compassion. We are to demonstrate a softness, a deep care toward our church family. And one of the defining characteristics of Jesus' ministry was compassion. Jesus continually demonstrated a care and love for people, especially hurting people at the deepest level. The Greek word for compassion refers to the bowels or the guts of a person. And the Puritan theologian Richard Sibbs wrote, Whatsoever Christ did, he did it out of love and grace and mercy. And he did it inwardly from his very bowels. And look, I think that as we reach out in love to one another, as we acted out a softness, a tender-heartedness, will naturally follow. As we move toward our Savior in love, He will work in our hearts to demonstrate love and care for His people. So we're to have a tender heart, a heart filled with compassion and a humble mind. This too is a natural byproduct of the gospel. Fundamental to the gospel is the recognition that our very best efforts, our very best thinking can't get us out of the mess that we've gotten ourselves into. None of us were saved because of our wisdom or our intellectual prowess, not even Presbyterians. Without Jesus, we are all helplessly lost. But by His grace, we haven't been left in that position. Christians are what they are. You are what you are because of a gift 
which means that there shouldn't be a hint of pride within us. Instead, our call is to have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Well, the last thing here on Peter's list we see in verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. (laughs) No big deal, right? right? What this is telling us is that in the Christian community, we do not get to use the tactics of the world, regardless of, of how people might come after us. We don't get to fight dirty. We don't get to come back harder. We don't get to get revenge. Well, that, that's, that's not for us. Justice is mine, says the Lord. These aren't options for Christians. Our hope and our trust is somewhere else. Now, this is a, a, a hard word for us, and there is no getting around it. And I think the beginning of verse 9 would be difficult enough, right? Do not repay evil or for evil or reviling for reviling, right? That's, that's a hard word in and of itself. But it also potentially provides the option of us just kind of withdrawing into our houses, closing the doors, shutting the blinds, and just being mad. Right? And we can separate ourselves from the world if this is the only call. But that's not the only call, is it? But on the contrary, bless for to this you were called. <laughs> Alarm bells might be going off in your head right now. But this is our calling. And this is what Jesus himself demonstrated. As Peter reminds us, as Peter reminds us earlier in the book, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That is what our call is. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Friends, all of the virtues that we have looked at find their culmination in Jesus. And our hope isn't that we're going to be the perfect example of what, or the perfect model of what Jesus was. He is our example according to this passage, but he's not just our example. He is our Savior. By his wounds, we have been healed. And he's also the one who empowers us to do what he says. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We have the Spirit of God residing in us, enabling us to do the very things that He calls us to. Now, friends, if we are able to even come close to living these things out, the world will take notice. The world absolutely will take notice. And in the verses that that follow, verses 8 and 9, Peter grounds these characteristics of Christian community in Psalm 34. He quotes it uh, somewhat at length. 
And in doing so, too, he's showing us the unity of Scripture, the unity between the Old and the New Testament. And after doing that, Peter goes on to show the effects of Christian community. And in verse 15, Peter writes this, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. In verse 15, Peter assumes that Christians living out the characteristics of Christian community will get people's attention. People who take notice will inevitably ask, what's the deal? How is it that you're not repaying evil for evil, reviling for reviling? How is it that you're able to show brotherly love towards people that you didn't know last week? People that you don't have any natural connection to? And when that happens, according to verse 15, we need to be prepared to give an answer, to make a defense, the Greek word being apologia. And in this verse, we have a beautiful blend of two things that we have a tendency to separate, the head and the heart. We are to make a defense. We are to give a reason for the hope that we have, which means that we need to know what we believe and why we believe it. Too often, people act as though faith and reason don't go together, as though reason doesn't play a role in our faith. But we need to remember that we are not only to love God with all of our heart, soul, and strength, but with our minds as well. We don't honor God when we check our brains at the door. And if you're looking for resources to help defend your faith, I would love to nerd out with you after the service. This is a, it's a fun topic for, for me and I know for, for many people in the room. And we actually have the privilege of, of having Rogers here to share with us some of that important work that he's doing um, across the world. So thank you, Rogers, for being here. We need to have reasons, though, for, for, for believing what it is that we believe. And friends, the good news, the encouraging thing is that we have them. Like especially when we begin to talk about the, historic, the historical reliability of the gospel narratives and the, and the wealth of New Testament manuscripts, early New Testament manuscripts that we have. I think we've got great ground to stand on when we start talking about the resurrection of Jesus and the, the early accounts of that. The fact that, that Paul claims that Jesus appear to 500 people at one time at a time when those 500 people would have still been alive. He wouldn't have been able to get away with that claim if it didn't actually happen. There's no explanation for the birth of the church and its explosion right, without the actual resurrection of Jesus. Friends, we have reasons to believe what it is that we believe. But notice what we are given reasons, what we are to give reasons for. We need to be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Our faith is not merely an intellectual exercise. The goal in sharing the gospel isn't simply, or no, it isn't to win an argument. These aren't dead facts that we're trying to share and compete with other people about. No, these are tangible realities that have real-life implications. These are hope-filled words. 
Again, we don't separate the head and the heart. These two things come together in the gospel. So we need to make a defense. We need to give a reason, but it should never be divorced from our experience of joy and hope in the gospel. And when we live out the characteristics of Christian community, when we are demonstrating to a watching world the reality of our hope, God can and will use that. Again, these aren't just abstract truths that we cling to. They are are meant to touch our hearts and our lives. And when we share the truth, and we do so with gentleness and respect, trusting that God, the same God who who has done a work in our hearts, can do the same in those that we're sharing with, good things happen. God does do a work. He expands His church. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.